The ESV version of the text will be displayed on the screen. Again, that's Job 38, 1 to 11. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's turn our attention now to Minister Taylor as he preaches on the topic of what does suffering teach us? Good morning, Crossbridge. Uh, I come to you today with a heavy heart about our, a very important topic in uh, our second series on bearing the wind load. Uh, there's so many things that needs to be said about this subject and so many more things to say than just what can be said in one sermon. And I hope, Lord willing, maybe that I could have the opportunity to say uh, some more things. If you are here today and in the midst of suffering, I want to tell you or really warn you that what I have to say today may not necessarily be very helpful to alleviate your suffering. What we often need in our darkest times is a hug from a friend rather than a word such as this one. To start off on kind of a little bit of a lighter example, it's, I, I really enjoy working out. And I enjoy, kind of enjoy, and enjoy is a very interesting word in this sense, uh, pushing myself very hard. When we are pushing ourselves very hard when it comes to working out, Oftentimes what we don't need is somebody to say, hey, your pain is going to bring gains, but we need somebody to encourage us on, to say, you got this, keep going, push hard, or for me to yell at me in my ear to say, hey, you got this, and keep going. And so in a similar way with this sermon, it's not going to be the hug from a friend, but it will be something that helps us learn what suffering teaches us, maybe that can be helpful on the outside or as we reflect and look in. What I say today about suffering, what, what suffering teaches us, is radically counterculture. It's radi radically countercultural and it's radically God centered. And it's not easy to hear. Let's pray together as we think through this tough subject. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be a healer to the broken. God, that you would bring us comfort and that you would help us as we look into the subject to, to learn and to grow. Would the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I begin to, to share these things, I, I want you to know that I am not sharing this as somebody who is completely unacquainted with suffering. I could point to a lot of examples to, to say that I'm only going to share just a brief amount to say that all you, to, to show that I'm not just saying that as somebody who has never suffered. 
I can point to my broken family life and when I was a child that my father was arrested for domestic violence. I can point to my time as a youth when I stood at the bedside of my uncle who had been shot as he bled out and died. I can point to other times as a youth in deep seasons of depression where I was contemplating if life was worth living. Going as what Job was saying of mourning the day in which we were born. I don't want to share any details of that because I care not to relive those moments, for one. And, and, and for two, the, the focus today is not on my suffering, but, but rather what suffering teaches us. I, I intend not to say that my suffering has been greater than yours. We all suffer in various ways and in, and in different ways. Mine is no greater than yours, nor is any one person's greater than another's. Our world is also suffering. I was reminded about this when I, I heard uh, a new song on the radio, and I'm going to read just some of the lyrics from that song. It says, I don't feel a single thing. Have the pills done too much? Haven't caught up with my friends in weeks, and now we're out of touch. I've been driving in L.A., and the world, it feels too big. Like a floating ball that's bound to break. Snap my psyche like a twig. And I just want to see if you feel the same as me. Do you ever get a little bit tired of life? Like you're not really happy, but you don't want to die. Like you're hanging by a thread, but you got to survive, because you got to survive. Like your body's in the room, but you're not really there. Like you have empathy inside, but you don't really care. Like you're fresh out of love, but it's been in the air. And my past repair? Our world is hurting. We are hurting. What is it all for? The aim of my sermon today is to communicate this, that suffering teaches us that we are not the center of the world. God is. Thus, even our suffering is ultimately not about us. It is about God and his glory. I'll say that again. Suffering teaches us that we are not the center of the world, but God is. Thus, even our suffering is not ultimately about us. It is about God and his glory. It is true that suffering teaches us a lot about building character and building hope. The Bible says more than, than simply that, uh, but, but it does indeed say that, as we read in our litany, and we're probably pretty familiar with that idea, and Dr. Arthur shared much about that last week, that, that suffering essentially makes us more like Christ. All those things are well and true and, and important to say. Uh, but since they, they have been said, since we are pretty familiar with it, I want to address what I would consider perhaps a deeper lesson on suffering from meditating on God's reply to Job from Job chapters 38 through 42. You're probably pretty familiar with Job. In Job chapter 1, we learn about him. In verse 1, it says, there was a man whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. In the same chapter, we also learn that Job was very rich, that God had blessed him with family, with friends, and material wealth. Job does nothing necessarily wrong, but God chooses to allow Satan to tempt Job. God allows the devil to take everything from Job, first his possessions and his family, then his own health. His possessions were destroyed and his family were killed 
and natural disasters. And then uh, a great part of the book is Job's friends asking Job and really mocking him, saying, what did you do to deserve all these things? Job lost everything, his family, his possessions, his health. And to make matters worse, his friends mocked him. Job mourns before the Lord and even laments his birth. And then again, a large portion of Job is talking, is Job and his friends discussing his suffering and pondering what is it all for and and trying to figure things out. And somewhat unexpectedly in chapter 38, God breaks the silence and joins in the conversation. What's more interesting is not that God joins in the conversation, but even what God says to Job. One would think that a loving God would, would speak to someone who is hurting and would encourage him, would say, I love you still, would, that, that God would come to his comfort or maybe even restore his fortunes. And at the end of the book, we do find out that God restores his, for, his fortunes, or he restores Job's fortunes, but the first thing that God does when he breaks in the silence is put Job on trial. In one sense, it was as if God was on trial by Job and his friends. They were asking, God, are you really good if you allowed all this to happen to Job? Indeed, you are good. Uh, indeed, are you good when you not only allowed it, but ordained that this would happen? But God would not stand on trial before man. So he flips things around. God does not give an answer to justify his goodness in light of Job's suffering, as we would expect. But as one commentator puts it, Job was asking why, but God answered who. And this nearly four-chapter-long reply to Job is where I draw out our lessons for suffering on what suffering teaches us today. Because God's reply is nearly four chapters long, obviously we cannot read it all, but I encourage you to go home maybe later tonight and read through those chapters. To recap where we are so far, my, my main aim is to communicate that suffering teaches us that we are not the center of the world, God is. Thus, even our suffering is ultimately not about us, it is about God and his glory. Three points from Job's 38 through 42 to show us this truth. I'll I'll list each point and then I'll go one by one. We are infinitely small compared to God. We are the created, not the creator. Our life and our suffering are about much more than ourselves. So first, we are infinitely small compared to God. God is infinitely big. He is the creator and sustainer of all things, but we are finite. He is infinite. Compared to God, we are infinitely small in at least three ways. First, we are infinitely, our power is infinitely small. Listen to how God begins his reply to Job in in 38, 3 through 4. He says, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. God continues by asking Job, where was he when God created all that is? In poetic beauty, we can feel the compound weight of the greatness of God compared to our simple finitude. Where were we when God laid the foundation of the earth, determined the expanse of the vast ocean, set the stars in its course? Where were we? We were non-existent. We feel the gravity of our finitude when we pause long enough to consider how small we really are. 
to lighten the mood for just a moment, a couple of my favorite things are practical ways to fill my own smallness. I enjoy heights, which is kind of odd because most people are afraid of heights. And to be honest, I'm a little bit afraid of heights as well. Uh, a few years ago, when my wife and I went to New York City, we decided to take the trip to the top of the One World Trade Center. And you can stand at the top and observe the New York skyline from about 1,776 feet. And then you can feel the gravity of how small you are looking over the skyline. And you see the Statue of Liberty looks like a little ant, and you can barely see it. And you see all these massive buildings. When you're on the, on the ground, you're looking up at them, but you can hardly see the top. But when you're at the top of the, the tallest building, they look, they look tiny. When we stop and ponder, ponder we, we feel very small. Perhaps even a stronger sense of our smallness comes when we stand at the summit of a mountain. I don't have one particular memory of standing at a summit of a mountain and, and feeling this weight, but, but even the mountains here in Massachusetts that are relatively small, when we stand at the top and we can look out and see the other hills off in the distance, or perhaps the, the taller ones in New Hampshire and we can see all the peaks, we begin to feel that we are small. I cannot imagine what it would be like to stand at the summit of Everest and feel that, that gravity or that weight of our smallness. One final example where I can feel the weight of my smallness even more than those two examples uh, is going out into the ocean. When we stand on a beach and whenever we look at the vastness of the ocean, we already feel a little bit small. But for me, I enjoy going about 50 yards or 100 yards out into the ocean, probably a little bit farther that's, that's safe to go, uh, and then stopping and feeling that, that weight. You have the compound weight of the vastness of the ocean as you look out to the sea and you just see for miles upon miles uh, of just the ocean. And then you're also far enough away from the shore that you know of just one wave that goes the wrong way or just the riptide and it's all over. It reminds you of how finite our life really is. Imagine for just a moment yourself in one of these situations. You're at the summit of a mountain looking out over to the other peaks. You're in the ocean looking out to the sea. As far as the eye can see, just the vastness. How small are we? How finite are we? When we compare ourselves to the vastness of nature, we feel the gravity of our finitude. Even more so when we compare ourselves to the God who made it all. We're infinitely small in at least three ways. Second, our perspective is infinitely small. Our perspective is infinitely small. When we read God's reply to Job, God asked Job many questions like, where were you when? Tell me if you know. Have you? Listen to some of these questions, and I'll be reading from chapter 38, starting in verse 16. Have you entered into the springs of the sea? Or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness? That you may take it to its territory. And that you may discern the path, the paths to its home. You know, for you were born then and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of snow, or have you seen the storehouses of hail? 
which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war. What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Turning the pages to chapter 39 and verse 19. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. His paws in the valley and exalts in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the, flesh, the flashing spear and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sounds of the trumpet. And when the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? There are many points to these questions, but one of them is asking, do we really know what God is up to? Do we really understand what God is up to? Do we really understand this world that we live in? All these vast examples of the greatness of God shows Job and shows us that God has a plan for his creation. Nothing is done by accident. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. We cannot possibly know all that God has planned for or why God does one thing or another. He has revealed to us uh, he has revealed his will to us in Scripture, and he has told us the things in Scripture that we need to know, but he has not told us all the possible things which truly we could not comprehend. Here's how that relates to suffering. We are, when we are in those moments, it is very hard to see how, what is happening outside of the right now. The pain causes everything else to dim, and we only see what is causing the pain. And that is true of both physical and emotional pain. We don't understand. We don't understand, but we don't need to understand because God does. He has a purpose for your pain, every single part of it. And I don't know what that purpose is, but I know he has a plan for it. We are infinitely small in at least three ways. Third, our purposes in ourselves is infinitely small. Our purposes in ourselves are infinitely small. Do you think your great-grandchildren will remember your name? Or will they remember what you do or what you were like? Do you know your great-grandparents' name or what they did or what they were like or if they're still living, what, what they are like? The reality is most of us will be forgotten within a few decades after we die. Our purposes are infinitely small. It's as James 4, 13 through 15 says, it says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such town and, sp and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord lives, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And sure, there are a handful out of the billions of people who have ever lived that we remember and know from history. But for almost all of us, we will accomplish basically nothing in our lifetime that will outlive us by a decade or two. 
If you're a nerd for philosophy like myself, these things I am talking about today are similar to what uh, a couple of atheistic branches of philosophy called nihilism and existentialism talks about in this idea of the absurd. Nihilism and existentialism are mostly atheistic branches of philosophy, and so they ponder what life means without a creator who gives it meaning. And their conclusion, the conclusion of what does life mean without a creator who gives it meaning, is that life is absurd. The idea of the absurd goes deeper than simply pointing out our insignificance to pondering the implications of our insignificance, and concludes because of our finitude that life is meaningless or at least void of any transcendent, mean, uh, any transcendent meaning that is beyond what we make for ourselves. That's what it means to be absurd. Albert Camus wrote in a famous book titled The Myth of Sisyphus, in which he said that all of our life is absurd. The myth of Sisyphus being uh, the Greek myth where Sisyphus was cursed by the gods to push a rock up and down a hill for eternity. He would push it to the top, and then before he reached the top, the boulder would roll back down, and he would have to repeat the cycle again and again for all eternity. Camus picks up this idea, and he says that our lives are just the same as Sisyphus, that we're going through the mundane things, and really all we're doing is just pushing a rock up a hill for it to fall back again. Nothing that we do in our life amounts to anything. Camus argues that life is the same way, that our lives amount to nothing, and our day-to-day -day strivings are just like Sisyphus and the curse of the mundane. Camus ponders the conclusion of this reality and says this, there is but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. All the rest, Camus says, are games. Camus argues that it would not be good for all of us who ponder the absurdity of life would commit suicide. Rather, he opts for arguing that we must find our own meaning and give our own life that meaning. Creating our, one, creating our own meaning is one key claim in existential philosophy, which is also popular with the ethos today. Camus argues that this pursuit of meaning is enough to satisfy us. To quote him again, at the end of the book, he says, the struggle itself towards the heights, that is the, the heights of, of seeking meaning, is enough to fill a man's heart. The pursuit itself is enough to, to fill a man's heart. So he concludes, one must imagine Sisyphus happy. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. When I ponder that idea, I can't but bring myself to think of anything more than how delusioned. And I mean that not in a way to mock or in a way to scoff, but if life really has no transcendent meaning, if we have to make it for ourselves and, and that is enough to satisfy us, then we're just living in a dream. We're just kidding ourselves. But that, that idea is one that our culture says. And so hence the lyrics of the song that I quoted earlier. Do you ever get a little bit tired of life? Like you're not really happy, but you don't want to die. Like you're hanging by a thread, but you got to survive. Why? Because you got to survive. In one of my deepest points of depression, when I was reflecting on my own finitude, I wrote this. When intelligence reaches a level of understanding of the frailty and limitations of our own life, 
the logical conclusion is either nihilism or the unrestrained surrender to the glory of God. Nihilism stands in the honest side of atheist philosophy and says that absurdity of life is really absurd. To create your own meaning is to live delusions. It is much more bleak than the existential ethos of genuine living, but it is much more honest. When we realize how small our life really is, how finite we are, when we feel that in the moment of us pondering how small we really are, when we look to the mountain peaks, when we think of our life, the logical conclusion is either nihilism or surrender to the glory of God. Second point, we are the created, not the creator. After pondering how small we truly are, it reminds us that we are the created, not the creator. I've been spending a lot of time talking about how small we are and haven't said enough about how big and how great God is. Look to the text and read these four chapters later. God is the creator God. Every grain of sand, all that is and was and ever will be is created by God. Not only is God the creator God, but he is the sustainer God. Not only is God the creator and the sustainer, he is the one who gives meaning to it all. As Colossians chapter 1, 16 through 17 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Things visible and invisible, from the tiniest atom to the mightiest galaxy. It was created by God, and it was created for God. And in between the tiniest atom and the mightiest galaxy are you and me, and everyone who has ever lived. We are the created. When you take the weight of these four chapters together and God's response to Job, this is arguably the biggest point that we see. God is God, and we are not. If you just turn to Job chapter 40, Job breaks through and has this realization for a moment. Uh, Job 40, verses 3 through 5. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no farther. The implication in God's response is that the created has no right to answer the creator. It's, or it has no right to question the creator. It's as Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Third point, our life and our suffering are about so much more than ourselves. Our life and our suffering are about so much more than ourselves. How in the world can we bear the wind load? How can we bear the pain and the suffering of this world? The honest atheist turns to nihilism and says we cannot, that life is purposeless and meaningless. The existentialist says that we have to look inwardly to find our own meaning, our own reason to live, our own purposes. But this is, in the end, only a delusion and escapism. Only Christianity offers a truly satisfying anchor to bear the wind load. And that answer, that anchor, is that your life is about so much more than yourself. Your suffering is about so much more. I cannot tell you what God is doing with either your life or your pain. 
but I do know he's doing something with it. I don't know what he's doing with it, but I know he's doing something with it. And if you love him, he's working it for his glory and for your good. As Romans 8.28 declares that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In the same way that God's perspective is far above our own, we do not always know what or why God is doing, but we do know that God works all things according to the counsel of his will and all things for the good of those who love him. Every single thing that happens has a purpose, and that purpose is far beyond you or me. God works all things for his glory. Your suffering is for the glory of God. Your suffering is for the glory of God. What I have said today is radically countercultural, and I really have no idea how you'll respond to this message. But for the same reason that I know that there is a purpose for all suffering, I know there is a reason for why I'm here speaking to you today from this pulpit and a reason for what I have said. There is a reason, and that reason is far beyond you and me. We are the created, put here to glorify God and enjoy him forever. There will be times of pain to varying degrees, but there is a reason and a purpose for it all. Suffering teaches us that we are not the creator of the world. God is. Thus, even in our suffering, uh, thus even our suffering is ultimately not about us. It is about God and his glory. And again, as I said at the beginning, that may not make it hurt any less. I get that. That may not make it hurt any less. But when we truly grasp who we are and who God is, not only with our minds, but also with our hearts, we can truly proclaim, God, let your will be done. I long for nothing else as long as you are glorified. One last thing before I close. How does this not make God a sadistic monster who uses our pain for his glory? One reason, the gospel. God does not sit upon his throne sadistically torturing us from heaven, orchestrating all these things. He came down and experienced suffering far greater than anyone could upon that cross. He did that out of love for you and me. Why a good God uses suffering for his glory is a question beyond this sermon, but one I hope to share if I have the opportunity to. For now, let us remember that suffering teaches us that we are not the center of the world. God is. Let us remember that, that God is not a God who just sits and tortures us, but he's one who came down, who bore our pain, who bore our suffering upon that cross. Let's pray. God, we know that you are God and that we are not. Lord, help us to see how beautiful it is that, that, that very truth, that you are God and that we are not. Our life is about so much more. And God, we do not always know what you are up to, but we know that you have a plan. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Help us to trust you, to look to you, and proclaim, let your will be done, no matter the cost. We thank you, and we pray in Jesus' name.